Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in this morning. Happy Easter! Today we celebrate the greatest hope and the greatest news in the history of this world. There are many, many, many different voices out there claiming to be the way to eternal life, but there's only one that actually backed that statement up by conquering death, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus beat death. He conquered it once and for all 2,000 years ago, and that is what we celebrate today. Not only the fact that he conquered it, but the fact that he promised in John 6:40 that he would do so for anyone and everyone who believes in him. What joy, what absolute exciting joy and news that we celebrate today that Jesus beat death once and for all and that we too can have eternal life by putting our faith and trust in him. It's an exciting day and I'm thrilled that you're listening this morning. So as we begin the show, it is an obvious contention by many critics that no such thing could ever occur, that there's no way that Jesus could rise from the dead, that that would be a miracle, that we don't see such things, that it's impossible. Well, naturally speaking, they're right. Naturally speaking, miracles aren't possible. But coincidentally, that's why they're miracles. They're not just natural outworkings of natural laws of nature. They are actual events caused by God himself, not in violation of the laws of nature, but as the result of his sovereign design and control. See, as the originator of the laws of nature, he can supplement them with special acts of his own choosing when, how, and where he chooses. And he did this amazing miracle as a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was prophesied all through the Old Testament. We've talked about that before. And his death and even his resurrection were prophesied in the Old Testament many, many, many hundreds of years before he ever walked this planet. Now, the miracle of Easter is what we celebrate this morning, and it's not just a fairy tale. It's not just bunnies and chocolate. We know that Jesus really did live on this earth, and we know that Jesus really did die on a cross, and we know from history and scripture, and scripture is also history, that he rose from the dead. In fact, the evidence for his resurrection is overwhelming. And many atheists will try to get around the evidence, but very few of them will make the ridiculous claim that the evidence is not there. I've mentioned before on this show that Bart Ehrman, a leading critic of the New Testament Gospels and the New Testament documents, a leading critic of Christianity, who, on a side note, is married to another college professor who is an ardent believer, who says that her husband is a man of integrity, but who's come to the wrong conclusions. <laughs> I would have to agree with his wife on that. But Bart Ehrman says there are so many different ways to get out of believing in the resurrection, and he gives fairly terrible ways 
of getting out of the evidence. And when he concludes his excuses or his rebuttals, he says, are my answers likely? And he says, no, they are not likely. It is not likely that I am right. But he says, we know in a naturalistic world that resurrections don't happen. So it doesn't matter if my explanations are unlikely. They're obviously better than a resurrection because resurrections just don't happen. So what he is saying is the evidence for the resurrection is much stronger than the evidence against it. In fact, there is no evidence against it. But he says because he is committed to metaphysical naturalism, he has to come to the conclusion that no resurrection occurred, regardless of what the evidence says. And his explanations, even though they might seem awkward, according to his worldview, must be right. Well, we're not going to play any shaky games like that today. We're going to look at the evidence and where it really leads. This is something that Ehrman and many critics are unwilling to do, but we are going to do it this morning. And I think you'll be encouraged that the evidence for Christ's resurrection is much better than any evidence that could possibly be mustered against it. So a lot of people start by saying Jesus never really died in the first place. The swoon theory is one that is famous, and this supposes that Jesus was only half dead when he was buried. This is virtually impossible. After being hung on a cross, which was one of the worst possible ways to die in the ancient world, having been speared through the side, no medical help would possibly be able to resuscitate someone in that condition. And if by some miracle Jesus did survive the crucifixion, how did he roll away a two-ton rock and escape an entire Roman guard guarding the tomb? This wound theory is impossible. Some people have said that eyewitness accounts were hallucinations, illusions, or mistakes. That's also impossible. If the accounts were hallucinations, Jesus' body could have been presented to the authorities to discredit those hallucinogenic accounts. The eyewitness hallucinations theory is impossible. Some would say the body was stolen. This is impossible. The Romans and Jews would not have stolen the body. They had a vested interest in stopping Christianity and keeping Jesus in the tomb. The disciples could not have overpowered a Roman guard, which was the elite military force of its day. The body being stolen is an impossible theory. Others would say the body was moved. That, too, is impossible because when accounts of the resurrection arose, authorities that presumably would have moved the body could easily have produced the body to end the accounts. So Jesus really did die in the first place, and there are good historical evidence for that. John in the Gospels describes pericardial and plural effusion, clear fluid and blood from the spear wound. This is a fabrication that he couldn't have just made up. It's a medical reality that he had no way of knowing in that day and age. The fact that he reports it indicates that Jesus really did die. The Jews had no belief that the Messiah would die in the first place, for the most part. The Dead Sea Scroll in stone indicates that there was an understanding of a suffering Messiah among the pre-Christ Jewish people, and there are other indications of this. Obviously, Scripture prophesies a suffering and even dying Messiah. You can look at that in Isaiah 53. So the reality is that the Jews of Jesus' time, for the most part, did not believe that there would be a suffering and dying Messiah, although some did. And the fact that the disciples left depressed and discouraged after Jesus' death 
is obvious that he really did die and that that destroyed their spirits until they saw the risen Christ. We'll talk about that in a minute. Finally, death by crucifixion was believed to be evidence of God's curse, not evidence of God himself. The Jews would not have looked at Jesus' death as confirmation of his messianic nature and personality. They would have seen it as confirmation of God's curse upon him, not something that would be fabricated by people trying to fabricate an account of a messiah. There are also divergent accounts of Jesus' resurrection that some would use to try and discredit the resurrection story. Now, non-contradictory divergence always supports eyewitness accounts, and it's actually something that is looked for in a court of law in the testimony of eyewitnesses. In fact, if you were interviewing multiple eyewitnesses and they all had virtually word-for-word word the same story, you would assume there was collusion among the witnesses, that they had gotten together and decided what they'd say and how they'd say it, and they all came through and said it just the way they'd all said it. Now, the reality is when we see divergences, not contradictions, but things that seem different, different details, that is evidence of real, authentic eyewitness accounts. Now, there is a criticism that the four different Gospels have contradictory versions of the resurrection story. Now, these four accounts each have unique information and different but not conflicting perspectives, so some initial confusion is expected. Upon investigation, it all makes sense. I'm going to run through some of the divergent accounts of the resurrection story in a way that appears to me to simply make sense. You might be able to do the same. Matthew 28, 2 through 4, the guards of the tomb see an angel move the stone and they fall over as dead. Verses 5 through 8, the women then arrive and see the angel but think that he is a young man. This often happens in scripture. Mark 16, 4 through 7 describes how this is typical in the Bible. For example, see the story of the angels visiting Lot in Genesis 19. They hear from him about Jesus' resurrection. This brings some joy, but they are still afraid, Matthew 28, 8, and bewildered, Mark 16, 7. If this had just happened to me, I would be equally confused. At first, they are so scared that they tell no one. But afterwards, Mary tells the disciples that the body is gone. The young man told them Jesus was risen, but they're all emotional wrecks at this point, and I would be too. They had no idea what was really happening. All they knew for sure was that the body was missing. Peter, in Luke 24, 12, and the other disciple, John 23 through 9, run to the tomb and find it empty, as Mary had said. Peter, Luke 24, 12, and the other disciple, John 20, 10, then run home, wondering what was going on. Again, Luke 24, 12. The women, still confused, return to the tomb, as anyone would in this situation, to investigate further, and they find that the tomb is still empty. Luke 24, 3. Then two angels appear to them and tell them about the risen Christ. Luke 24, 4 through 8. Mary was a part of this second group. Then, in the garden, Mary is walking ahead of the rest of the group when Jesus reveals himself to her. John 20, verses 11 through 17. Immediately afterwards, the rest of the group catches up with Mary, and they too see Jesus, Matthew 28, 9 through 10. He then tells them to go and tell his disciples. Mary, in John 20, 18, and the other women, Luke 24, 10 through 11, then return and tell the disciples of the risen Christ. Jesus later reveals himself to his disciples, Matthew 28, 16 through 17, and John 20, 19 through 23, also to Thomas, in John 20, 26 through 28. Two followers on the road to Emmaus, 
Luke 24, 13 through 49, the Apostle Paul, Acts 9 and 22, and more than 500 others, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. We see that all these different so-called divergent accounts easily work together to paint the whole picture of what happened in a way that any court would realize is valid eyewitness testimony. There are many different evidences for the resurrection. Gary Habermas, who we've interviewed on this show, who did our Easter show last year, tells us in The Risen Jesus and Future Hope that most all scholars, secular and Christian alike, agree that the following 12 points are historically accurate. Again, virtually all scholars and experts in this field agree on the following 12 points, even those that are not Christians. They would all agree, for the most part, that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion, that he was buried in a private tomb, that the disciples, as I mentioned previously, were initially discouraged, that Jesus' tomb was found empty shortly after his burial, that the disciples and numerous others were convinced that they saw the risen Christ, that their lives were completely transformed to the point of being willing to die by what they saw, that the story of the resurrection took place very early at the beginning of church history. There's evidence that it goes back to the very year of Jesus' death and resurrection. That their testimony and preaching took place initially in Jerusalem. That the gospel from the beginning centered on the resurrection. That Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping because of this very fact. That James, the brother of Jesus, went from skeptic to believer because of seeing the risen Christ and that Saul, later known as Paul, did as well. All of those points are agreed on by virtually all scholars, Christian or not, and they paint the exact picture of the resurrection that we see in Scripture. The reason that all scholars agree on those points is that they are historically valid. And Habermas, who's put those together, who calls those the minimal facts approach, has put those together to argue for the resurrection from data that all scholars agree on. And because of his meticulous observance of all these data and his handling them with integrity, he wins his debates on this issue. And he has been judged the winner of debates on the resurrection of Christ when he's debated atheists on this very topic. The evidence for Christ's resurrection is outstanding. There's evidence surrounding Jesus' burial. Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus. Now, Joseph was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which had accused Jesus. If the disciples were just fabricating the story, they wouldn't glorify their own arch nemesis, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who convicted Jesus to death. Everyone would have known the location of Joseph's property. See, the Sanhedrin was like the Senate today, and this would have been a well-known man with a well-known address and anyone could have gone for themselves to see it. It would have made it impossible to hide anything. There are no competing independent burial stories, and if it were a fabrication, there would have been other burial accounts as well, and there just simply aren't. So we know that Jesus really was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Second, the Roman seal was placed over the two-ton rock at the entrance to the tomb. Breaking a Roman seal was punishable with upside-down crucifixion. It especially would have discouraged Jesus' disciples, who at this point were still very dejected, believing that their hoped Messiah was nothing but a farce. Dejected and discouraged, they would not have broken a Roman seal, which was punishable by death, to fabricate a lie. 
A two-ton rock was also placed in front of the tomb and would not have easily been moved. Next, a Roman guard, as I mentioned previously, which was part of a Roman legion, was placed in front of the tomb. Roman guards were undefeatable in the day, especially by a ragtag group of 12 ordinary men. Had they been defeated, this would have been used as evidence against the resurrection. Roman guard members were burned to death with a fire started with their own clothes if they fell asleep at guard. Not one of them would have fallen asleep, much less the entire guard. When they found Jesus' tomb empty, the guard fled, which was also punishable by death. They knew there was a problem with what happened. It wasn't just explicable through natural phenomena. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM and KDUR.org online. Happy Easter! We're talking about some of the phenomenal evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I hope you're enjoying this Easter morning and this show as well. And I hope you'll get a lot out of the next 15 minutes. There's more evidence concerning Jesus' resurrection. This tomb was found empty by women. In the first century AD, women were considered not trustworthy. And even though their testimony was somewhat accepted in court, they were highly frowned upon and not seen as reliable witnesses. And so a fabrication by the disciples, if that's what this was, would not claim that women found the tomb empty because such a claim would be seen as not trustworthy by most people reading the original gospel accounts. This tells us that they were reporting the truth. They weren't just fabricating this out of thin air. The supposed discrepancies of this story, what we refer to as divergent accounts, are all just different parts of the same story, so there aren't contradictions, and these two show that we can trust what's written in the Gospels. There's also evidence outside of Scripture. The earliest Jewish and Roman response described in biblical and extra-biblical accounts admitted an empty tomb. The earliest Jewish response recorded in the Bible assumed an empty tomb. Jewish and Roman extra-biblical sources admit an empty tomb. Josephus and the Jewish Toledoth Yesu provide positive evidence from a hostile source concerning Jesus' resurrection, as do some other extra-biblical accounts. If the body had been in the tomb, there would be no argument today. The Jewish leaders claimed that the body had been stolen. This would be impossible concerning the security of that tomb and the guard placed at the tomb. There are evidences in Judaism. The Jews didn't even believe confidently in life after death for anyone, and the resurrection would not have been fabricated. There's also evidence from eyewitnesses. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, and I mentioned it a minute ago, claims that over 500 eyewitnesses saw the risen Christ. Some of these included hostile witnesses like Jesus' own brother, James, and Saul of Tarsus, who later became a believer because he saw the risen Christ. Similarly, there were no denials. If Jesus was known to have died, people would have said so. Someone, sometime, would have said, uh-uh, actually, we know that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because, oh yeah, we saw the body four days after he was buried. But there are no such recorded denials whatsoever. The Christians exhibited a complete lack of faith at the first news of the resurrection. They were disbelievers. They all went on to face torture and persecution, however, and most died as martyrs. See, people often die for what they believe in, but no one ever dies 
for what they know to be a lie. And in this case, if all of these men had fabricated this story, they all would have had to have gone to their martyrs' deaths knowing that they were dying for a lie. And this never happens. They were willing to suffer and die because they really did see the risen Christ after he was buried. And this is good evidence for the resurrection. There are other evidences as well. Jesus' resurrection was prophesied, again, like I said earlier, both in the Old Testament and by Jesus himself. The sky was darkened after his death, and this is recorded in Thallus' third book of histories, quoted by Julius Africanus and others who even record the date and time of the darkness and the earthquake mentioned in Matthew 27, 51. The Christian's creed, which is the earliest documentation of the Christian's beliefs, describe the resurrection. And this dates back to the very year of Jesus' death. The apostles used Christ's resurrection as proof for the gospel, telling people that they knew that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus' body was available, people would never have allowed such statements. I've mentioned some of the criteria of embarrassment, how the risen Christ was found by women, the disciples' unbelief, Joseph of Arimathea, etc., these embarrassing details would have been omitted from a fabrication. As I previously mentioned, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. One example of that is John 2, 18-22. The disciples adamantly claimed that Jesus rose physically. If they were just fabricating a story, creating a lie, they would probably have chosen to make it unfalsifiable by claiming he rose spiritually. I think from some of these evidences, and there are many more, but we only have so much time this morning, it's clear that we can trust the account in Scripture of Jesus' resurrection. We can realize this morning that the hope we have is justified, that Jesus really did conquer death, that he really did rise from the dead on that third day 2,000 years ago. The resurrection confirms Jesus' trustworthiness and his authority in making all of his claims, and specifically his claim to be able to give eternal life to anyone that would put their trust in him. This evidence convincingly confirms that the resurrection occurred. Jesus' claims must be personally considered. That being stated, each one of us has to decide what we will do with Jesus. He said that he was the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that Apart from him, we could not make it to heaven. You could read his exclusive statements in John 10 and John 14 and other places. That being stated, though, there is no other way. And Jesus referred to other supposed ways as thieves and liars because he knew that only he had the authority to conquer death and only he backed it up by actually doing it. If you've never taken... The step to put your trust in Christ, I would invite you to do that even this morning. See, Easter is not a celebration of bunnies, chocolate, or spring, but it's a remembrance of the truth and the historical reality of Jesus' death and resurrection and his payment for your sins and mine. See, the Bible says God loves you infinitely, that he loves you with an everlasting love, that he thinks about you constantly, that his thoughts for you outnumber the sand of the seas. He says that he created you to have a relationship with himself, and he says he's drawing you to himself with kindness. You've probably felt in your life how God was drawing you to himself. Now, that same God that is drawing you to yourself because he loves you, 
desires that you would live with him in eternity for all of eternity in heaven and have an abundant life of meaning and purpose here on this planet. Unfortunately, you and me and everyone you see around you is sinful. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. We're all selfish. We're not perfect. God is perfect, and that creates a big problem. An imperfect person can't be in close fellowship with a perfect God. So we are separated from God because of our sin. And if that were the end of the story, we would all spend eternity separated from him in what the Bible calls hell. Thankfully, Jesus came to this earth, God in human flesh. He lived a perfect life that none of us ever could. And then he went to the cross and died on that cross, taking your sins and mine on himself. The Bible says literally nailing them to the cross so that anyone who would put their faith and trust in him would be forgiven of all their sins, seen as perfect by God, not because of what they'd done, but because of what Christ had done. And by rising from the dead on the third day, he conquered death, providing eternal life to all those that would believe in him. So now the ball is in your court. Today on Easter, you can receive his free gift of salvation saying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I ask you to forgive my sins, to come into my life, to make me the kind of person that you want me to be, to be my Savior and Lord. He says if you take that step, he literally will give you an eternal life in heaven and an abundant life of meaning and purpose here on this planet. And you can be confident of that, not because you've earned it, but simply because you've put your trust in him. Now, if you are a believer... I want to ask you a very introspective question. Are you living like Easter really happened? If Jesus really did conquer death, then we truly do have the answer to all of humanity's problems and to all of humanity's questions. And I want to ask you, what are you doing to share that hope with those around you? Because nobody else has such answers. Nobody else has such hope. And everyone around you really does have all sorts of pain and agony in their lives. They do have tremendous guilt and shame. And according to scripture, will live for all of eternity apart from God if they don't come to know him on this planet. So if you really believe that Easter is real and the evidence confirms that it really is, I want to ask you to live like it to walk in the grace that God has given you and to share that with those around you, even this morning. It's not too late. You could invite somebody to church even this morning. I'll share more in a minute, but we'll be at the River Church this morning, right off of Florida at 1045 a.m. And you could invite some friends to join us there for a wonderful celebration of Easter. No matter who you are, the fact that Easter is verified that Jesus' death and resurrection are historically confirmed should give you tremendous joy this morning, and I really hope it will. Like I said a minute ago, if you'd like to explore more, please visit the River Church this morning, right off of Florida at 1045 a.m. You can't miss it. Big, huge, gray building, and we'll be meeting this morning at 1045 a.m. at the River Church. I hope you'll join us. I would also like to invite you to connect this week in Noble Hall 125 at 6 p.m. 
Again, that's Noble Hall, 125, at 6 p.m. this Tuesday. Join us for Connect and come grow in your walk with God. Finally, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope this Easter morning, that as you evaluate the evidence, you'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Easter. Have a wonderful day.